Welcome to another Biota recording. I know, just hot on the heels of the last one. I had to get in contact with Jeffrey Ventrella. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello, Tom. So it's been a long time since we uh, since we chatted formally for a Biota recording. What have you been doing in artificial life terms in the past couple of years? Oh, in terms of artificial life, let's see. Um, nothing like absolutely. Well, I guess there are a couple of things that might be sort of in that realm. The two would be. Um, I took a little, a little sort of virtual pet called the bird, what's now called Peck Peck, as in a pecking bird. And a friend of mine helped me get it up on the iPad, and uh, you can you can search it online, Peck Peck. It's a it's a little ninety nine cent iPad app. And um, I, I hesitate to <laughs> to invite your listeners to try it out because the AI is not very good. Uh, it's kind of fun to play with for five ten minutes maybe five minutes, uh, but I'm about to add a little more AI to it so that it's got some more behavior and a, a little bit of potential for gameplay. But that's something, and I'm going to be doing a little bit more work on that soon. Besides that, there's uh, there's a book that I've been working on about fractal curves, and I've written a genetic algorithm to help search for uh, space-filling fractal curves. So there's a little genetic algorithm work there, just kind of a, a recasting of some of the GA work that I had done before for the purpose of looking for fractal curves. So when we last talked, and in fact, I know this for a fact, because you're one of the the featured uh, folk in the uh, Artificial Life Conversations book, which, yes, folks, will be coming out relatively shortly. I have probably only about 15 more pages to edit before I get out the final draft to people, so I haven't dropped the ball on that. But I remember in our last conversation for that, which which appears in the book, we were talking about gene pool for the iPad. Has there been any progress on that? I don't remember what we talked about or what, what what's the when we talked about it, but a friend of mine who I worked with at Linden Lab um, offered to port gene pool over to the to the iPad. And basically what he did was he just took my code and he and he replaced one part of it with um, kind of Apple specific objective c code to make it run so it i wouldn't describe it as a native ipad application it runs on the ipad fairly slowly but um there is uh in the works uh, an idea to uh to make it native to to get it to be running really fast and to use some of the features of the ipad but you can uh you can get gene pool for the ipad it's called swimbots because someone else made something called gene pool on the ipad so if you just look up swimbots uh you can search around you can probably find it and it's free actually oh wonderful wonderful yeah, you should you should give it a try if you've got an iPad. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, it was it was a no brainer uh, putting putting it on the iPad because uh, certainly the yeah the interface just lends itself very heavily to the kinds of stuff that you were doing there. Yeah. So, any thoughts about making it open source? Uh, no, no thoughts at the moment. No, I guess I'm still where where we've been in the last I don't know so many years. Haven't really made any progress on that. So I was on SourceForge recently, and I found Melody Ball once again. Ah, did you receive any feedback on Melody Ball? I didn't get any feedback. Um, I don't think I ever got any. So I, I, I mean, I do get the occasional mail uh, from from SourceForge, which is just, I guess, they they send out to various people who are on their mailing list. But other than that, I I haven't heard anything. And I'm not since I'm new to the open source. Uh, world, I don't know exactly what I would be looking for. 
Yeah, as, as I'm old to the open source world, I'm not really sure what to be looking for either. My experience with open source, particularly in terms of external contributions, has, has tended to be rather haphazard. But also, I think there's, a, there's an active promotion part of it too. I think you need to be kind of actively talking about it, actively doing development, this kind of stuff for probably a, a few years. Yeah, exactly. It's not like you put it out there and suddenly you're going to get people wanting to use it. You have to be actively pursuing that so which i haven't been so so in terms of in terms of i mean it's interesting the peck peck thing because certainly i I think it was john klein i was talking with about what probably two years ago now maybe more about the ios devices in terms of creating artificial life for them specifically for them rather than porting something over actually looking at the device and seeing how you could take aspects of the device and, and make artificial life specific for it yeah. And I seem to recall we had a similar wrapping session when I was on location in Stanford with you just before the Stanford research uh, talk, that there were certain things that were intrinsic to these devices that would make very interesting artificial life simulations, not just the idea of perhaps an ant farm that you could shake or these kind of things, but actually that there was more to the devices. Uh-huh. Have you, have you thought any more about this? And, I mean, with PicPic now being a, you know something that you are periodically working on, can you talk a little bit about the iOS interface and how you thought more about it developing PicPic? That's a very good question. In fact, it, it, it it's something. It's a, probably a good thing to think about. At the moment, um, you know, the, the, it would need some of the the obvious, where when you tilt the screen, uh, different things happen. When you shake it, like you said, or pinching and and moving, you know, using the touch interface to its full potential, um, which I would kind of categorize as interaction and direct manipulation of this of this uh creature which uh, obviously deepens the the amount of interaction and the kinds of interaction you can have with it but what what I would really be interested in is you know with a mobile device like an iPad or an iPhone you could be wandering around the neighborhood and with with GPS and the compass and um accelerometers and all that you can uh you can pretty much immerse yourself in the environment of the neighborhood that you're walking around in, if you know what I mean. And your location could could uh, affect uh, what's going on on your screen. And you could interact with other people that have uh, the same thing running on their iPhones or iPads. Uh, so I think there's a lot of potential in that, if you know what I'm talking about. Certainly. You know, all that, all that proximity sensing and also... What's what's it an augmented reality? I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, there's there's a lot of potential uh, through that through the devices. I was talking with Eric Burton over the weekend, and he mentioned your Earth Day simulation. Uh huh. And he found it quite inspirational, particularly because he has interests in I don't know what the term would be. I guess abstract cellular automata applied to interesting surfaces. Uh huh. In terms of that work, have you have you done anything more on that in the past couple of years? Nothing more uh, on that particularly. Um, although I did start, I kind of extrapolated on that into some questions about uh, applying fractal curves on spheres, but that's not really related to to the CA, but. Yeah, I in the process of, of researching a paper that I wrote for uh, oh, what was the name of the book? Uh, it's it's a book a, a book about Conway's Game of Life and new 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 developments in it. And I wrote a, a paper in that book about um, a, uh, about using the sphere to find particular um, logic gates using Conway's Game of Life. But yeah, in the process of doing that research, I, I did come across some other papers about using non-Euclidean surfaces 
uh, for CA, particularly the, uh, the hyperbolic surfaces, which is very interesting. Let's delve into the exploration of very non-Euclidean surfaces. You mentioned that you're using genetic algorithms in order to explore fractals. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Yeah, well, I mean, in a sense, uh, you know, genetic algorithms being um, inspired by Darwinian evolution and fractals, which are, I guess, to some degree also inspired by uh, nature and the forms of nature, it would seem to be a good fit. Basically, the idea is that uh, when you consider the combinatorics of uh, fractal curve parameters, it's quite large. Uh, I, I did some calculations a couple of years ago as far as if I wanted to explore the space of all possible fractal curves, that would be self-avoiding and plane filling, if you know what I mean. So self-avoiding means the curve as it fractalizes to fill the plane, it never touches itself. And it's plane filling, meaning that its fractal dimension is two. The number of possible fractal curves is in the, I don't know, trillions and Googles and, you know, really big. Um, and so writing a search algorithm for that, uh, a genetic algorithm seemed like a good start to, to cull through that space and eliminate, uh, eliminate the duds and, and find some interesting stuff. And indeed, I've found several hundreds of uh, plane filling fractal curves. Some of them are quite amazing. And in terms of the fractal dimension being two, is it exactly two in all those cases, or is it a close approximation to two? It is two, um, but that doesn't mean that the fractal curve is necessarily well-behaved in every case. So if you're familiar with Mandelbrot's book, in particular um, the, the first few chapters where he uh, goes through uh, the, the, the construction process of these fractal curves, he gets into pretty good detail in terms of uh, self-avoiding, uh, contacting, and the various ways that a fractal curve can interact with itself. In fact, I, I still have some really interesting open questions about that. But yes, basically the dimension is two, and the interesting thing is not so much the dimension itself, but the actual the actual texture of the curve, the way the curve uh, the way the curve spills fills space. I think is the most interesting thing. If you go to fractalcurves.com, that's where I've put an online version of the book. And uh, once I get the, the – the, this is sort of a draft draft version of the book. But you can see all the pictures and, and the, whole, the whole idea there, fractalcurves.com. This issue of fractal dimensionality is a very interesting one. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a couple of – maybe three chapters ago in one of these um, Sekbach, Gordon et al. books – associated with the fractal dimensionality of life and uh, that you could actually calculate the fractal dimensionality of living systems as a means of using it for analysis. So, you know, you have a camera uh, looking at various things that are floating past and the, uh -huh. the underlying life structures have a, a fractal dimension to them, which seems to be very similar to some of the fractal gallery elements that you're finding. But the number that I found was not too exactly but there was close approximations to it which ah. i think is very interesting in the stuff that you're seeing in fact there's almost an artificiality to some of the fractals that you're finding but you are ah, okay so if you go further down okay so you are basically coming to the same the same observation through completely different means the observation that that you can take a living system you can establish a fractal dimensionality associated with that living system and then yeah, it's reproducible. Although, ah, the pop noodles is an interesting one. 
I'll uh-huh. need to think on that. The kind of ramen noodles. <laughs> you saw the ramen noodles, uh-huh. No, so that, that's definitely not living, but could approximate various fractal dimensions. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. You might have found some curious counterexamples. This is the thing that I love about, about writing a book, because, you know, you start writing the book, and as you get deeper into it, and, you know, this is a process that takes, you know, years, you know, Certainly. more than a year. All of these new uh, branches and ideas and, and tangents kind of come out of it, and sometimes those tangents blow up into big parts of the whole idea of the whole thesis. And so, uh, you know, in fact, recently I've been uh, finding out that there's a direct, that there's a direct correlation to tiling and, you know, there's the whole science of tiling and the geometry of tiling is, is directly related to, to uh, plane filling fractal curves. And so uh, they're called fractiles or reptiles, repeating tiles. And the process of, Fractalizing them is what uh, Mandelbrot called um, per tiling, per as in perfume to fill with fumes. So just uh, the, the the metaphors, you know, that, that that color the language is 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 really fun, and it just sort of provokes all these all these ideas. So it's it's to me it's an endless subject. So it's interesting because this fractal book is being published on Lulu, which I think is is an idea that I I may have first set in your in your thinking. You may have, yeah. Very nice. Well, this is exactly the kind of stuff that I wanted to see happen. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, 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 what I'm doing is I, the, 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 the few books that I've done so far in the past few years, uh, and I, I expect to continue that, I have self-published and put them on Lulu. One of them is, uh, was taken up by ETC Press out in Carnegie Mellon. But, you know, what I, what I do is I want to prototype the book and get it to, be, to, to function as a book. And but this book in particular, I, I do plan to uh, pitch it to some publishers and see if I can get a coffee table book out of it or something that would be, you know, interesting to the general reader who who likes to look at amazing pictures of fractals and maybe learn a little bit of math in the process. Yes, I remember the divisor drips and square root waves book. Uh-huh. Uh huh. In particular, in fact, I think that may have been your first one that that I picked up a copy of and went through quite thoroughly, uh, pen in hand making a series of notes in the margin. Yeah, yeah, you made some good points, uh, good, good advice on, the, on some of the ideas in the book. Well, I'm going to have to buy your other ones then and, and do similar damage to them because uh, <laughs> this sounds absolutely wonderful. You, you know, this is exactly the embodiment of what I wanted folks to, uh, to do. And, I mean, I've, I've talked to a number of people, but none of them have, uh, have grasped the idea and run with it as heavily as you have. So hats off, Jeffrey. This is wonderful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's. I, I guess if you have an obsession, you may as well make a product out of it. This is a point of kind of continuous discussion. I mean, particularly you were talking. Well, actually, we didn't talk specifically, but you've been relatively active in YouTube in terms of putting some of your work on YouTube as well. And there is a growing artificial life YouTube movement, and I put to some of them that they should consider academic publication. Uh huh. And uh, I've gotten mixed feedback, but the general consensus is uh, academic publication is so nineteenth century. My feedback to that is, it is true. Uh, academia, in large part, is you know one of the last truly monastic professions. <laughs> Unfortunately, they will not be converted within our living you know generation, and probably not four generations at least to come. Um, but I do think there is some benefit in 
condensing ideas in a written form as well. It could just be that I'm on the same Kool-Aid. But I do think there's there's some benefit there. And I have advocated quite strongly that in many of their cases, it's a matter of just gathering together 30 or 40 text files and, you know, 100 or so blog entries and just scrubbing it up a little bit and then putting it out in this form. Yeah. No, this really is wonderful. This really is wonderful. Cool, yeah. I, I, I've been having a good time with it. And in terms of direct feedback, I mean, you mentioned one of the books has been picked up for, for publication. Which one was that specifically? Uh, the book is called Virtual Body Language. And it basically takes uh, the 10 years that I've spent in um, virtual world companies, uh, starting with Dare.com and then Linden Lab, and then followed by uh, various uh, research projects uh, up in Vancouver uh, related to virtual worlds particularly avatars and avatar expression and body language. And um, what that book does is sort of takes the, takes the theme of how do you make avatars that provide puppeteered expression of what you're trying to communicate in the, in the virtual world and takes that idea and extends it to a larger class of, of things. How does, how does nonverbal communication manifest itself on the Internet and we have plenty of examples of verbal communication manifested on the internet with um, text and email and so on and so forth. Nonverbal is is different, and and I, I don't actually include Skype and video in in that in 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 this category because that's really kind of an extension of telephone with a visual aspect. I'm thinking more in terms of avatars and uh, sort of synthetic visuals. At any rate, it, it's uh, I'm already getting a little bit too deep into the the nuances of the book. But again, if you go to virtualbodylanguage.com, you can find that book, and um, there are free online chapters at ETC Press. So, for artificial life developers, I mean, I think the avatar community has had a solid van into the artificial life community. I mean, particularly through simulations where the artificial life creatures or artificial life forms have physical forms that have some form of locomotion. Uh-huh. For folks who are getting interested in artificial life and are considering developing projects that may have some physical locomotion, what can they take from the avatar community in terms of all the scholarship that has gone into, into movement? I don't think a whole lot of uh, scholarship of movement has happened in the avatar community. Uh, I, I think that, um, in fact, one of, one of the premises of the book is that the avatar development in, in a lot of these virtual worlds has been lacking in in terms of the the, the expressive movement that one would expect for uh, a puppet for someone's expression. There has certainly been a lot of research in movement and in um, spontaneous movement and the different hierarchical aspects of how creatures and people move with all the different uh, hierarchical puppeteering aspects of that. But I don't think a whole lot of that scholarship has gone on in, in the virtual worlds industry. And that was one reason I wrote the book, to try to make that connection. So I guess the avatar community, as it may fringe into the artificial life community, also moves into game development, for example. Do you see yeah. that there's distinctions in terms of what's gone on in game development for full body movement and these kind of things that doesn't exist in the avatar community? Perhaps a bit more in game development, simply because game, you know, games encompass such a larger class of, of things and, and kinds of activities and kinds of creatures. Maybe I shouldn't say that because uh, you know, virtual worlds 
you know, the, the, there's quite a blur between what a, what is a virtual world and what is a game. But you know, my personal interest is is how avatars could could not necessarily be human, but animal or even plant or something else. And this is an idea that Jaron Lanier has been championing for a long time. The idea of embodying something that's non-human or post-human or transhuman, and uh, just the expressive potential of that. So, you know, when you think about an avatar as as something more imaginative than just a a person that looks like you, uh, I think you get into some really interesting domain. I guess my assessment associated with the avatar community is that, as you describe in large part, it's almost puppetry and mimicry. It's not really to do with something that looks like you at all. In fact, that's the antithesis, really, of most of the avatars that people actively create. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it is, yeah, it is a very interesting space. And I think one that the artificial life community could also give very direct and meaningful feedback in. I mean, hence the discussion associated with a artificial life game, SDK, uh, and a wide variety of other things that have come through the broader biota conversations. But yeah, it is a very interesting area, and certainly I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book um, with a view that, uh, you know, you, you've had uh, you know, a decade-plus worth of trench insight into this kind of stuff. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure there's, there's plenty of stuff to be learned. So after you're, after you're completed with the Fractals book, I mean, the version of the Fractals book is already available online. What are your what what things are inspiring you with future writing? I have another idea for a book which would be more um, not so much a, a art, math, uh, artificial life style book, but it would be a book about software development and looking at left brain, right brain programming styles. Um, I, it's I guess it's mostly inspired by all the stories. Uh, uh, of my life of, of working in, in the programming industry and, you know, collecting anecdotes about, about such, such and such and whatnot, but also, um, just sort of looking at thinking styles and how, uh, the culture of software development could, could stand to encompass more, more kinds of people with more thinking styles, particularly, uh, right brain. Thinkers. It is an interesting phenomenon, and particularly moving back to the Bay Area, and it's one of these difficult things that you know people always prescribe certain things to certain areas. But uh-huh. the one thing that strikes me about moving back to the Bay Area is it's a completely different place in terms of programming style, in terms of all these elements than when I was here a decade ago. How, how is it different? How do you see it different? So probably prior to moving back, I would have said that software as commodity is very much more the case. So the software that's being written is fundamentally engineered for very specific purposes and the ability to have novelty uh, within software is, is far more constricted. What I found more being on the ground is actually that there seemed to be a more interesting skill set than there was when I was here a decade ago. I think the notion that people come to this through a series of possible means, and also there's been a mass migration. I mean, there was a mass migration when I was here a decade ago. I was part of that in some regard. But the folk that have stayed here and have maintained coding, yeah, are are completely different to the folks that I encountered when I was here 10 years ago. The technology has changed dramatically as well. There's been a on one sense, a simplification. In another sense, there are still druids out there that have knowledge from 15, 20 years ago. It has changed, I think. Yeah, I think it has changed, but I'm not sure how... I'm interested in seeing how you distill it. 
in your book? Yeah, well, we'll find out. I, uh, I, I actually start, started writing it because occasionally I'll have an idea and I just need to write it down. So I, I've, I've got little bits and pieces going. But yeah, who knows how the book's going to go? You know, it may turn into a different kind of book. But I am very interested in the way software programmers think and the way non-software programmers think and um, why software developers uh, would benefit from thinking about things the way non-programmers think, because it's very the nature of the human mind is that that you adapt to whatever strange constraints that you're in, and um, once you get into the realm of of the implementation of your code, it's easy to lose sight of uh, what you're doing and 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 how it appears from from the non-implementation point of view, if you know what I'm saying. And there's this there's this in and out kind of process that I think programmers are, are are advised to do uh, and that is to uh, move into the to the particular crevices of your code and then back out again to to a very broad view of it um, and um, that's that's sort of one of the processes that I would that I, that I will probably be trying to write about in the book and it reminds me of uh, when I was taking art classes there was a painter who used to paint he would walk to one end of the room in his studio and he would put a little brush stroke and then walk to the other end of the studio which was huge and he would look at it from afar and the person who lived in the apartment below him was was being driven nuts from his walking back and forth but that served to 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 show uh the way a painter looks at something up close and then far away and and that perspective back and forth i think is critical to good software programming i would agree and here's an int- i mean i wasn't able to make an interesting point with your last question but if i may make an interesting point with this i've just finished a another swan gordon sekbach ekal chapter uh, for one of their books it's for the origin of mind uh-huh. where i explain the three different simulations the three different simulations that deal with different aspects of the simulated mind in nova lake and then uh-huh. at the very conclusion of the chapter, I make the point that actually what I've done is provided a philosophical argument, but completely eliminated the standard philosophical paradoxes by explaining the philosophical argument through software as implemented, with the view that the software is the philosophy fundamentally. And I think this is, I'm now reviewing chapters for the same book. And my frustration has always been that philosophers have never been able to move across the boundary. In fact, a few have. I mean, I've, you know, I, I have half a dozen philosophers that I can pull from periodically when I review poor chapters in this light. There's more of a chance of someone who writes software coming from a diverse background than there is from someone who is looking at software, be it artificial intelligence, um, artificial life systems, these kind of things, actually meaningfully being able to explore it. I think the role now is for us almost to explain and evangelize, and this came through the discussion with Eric Burton as well, that this kind of artificial life software that is now being created is so abstract by what was being written, and and abstract through complexity, than what was being written even a decade ago, that if the people have kind of put down the, you know, put down their Dawkins or Levy or, (laughs) you know, Margaret A. Bowden, um, and then come back to this discipline now it's very difficult to actually kind of connect the dots in between. And the, I guess, implicit fear associated with exploring the kind of software that you and I take for granted uh-huh. is an interesting point that um, 
maybe it's more about outreach than it is about exploration of kind of internal elements, because I certainly see, through my own experience, a diversity of folks writing software now, although they are dealing with fundamentally the same ingredients to make different kinds of soup. But yeah, there are interesting problems associated with bringing in a broader community, and particularly as an artificial life developer, that I think goes above and beyond the methods that we use as, as kind of programmers engineering this software. Yeah, it's probably like so many other disciplines. Once it, once the terms and the and the definitions and and the uh, practices get uh, well defined, then um, it uh, starts to lose some of the imagination, and um, and it's harder to pull it out of its well defined. Box. I think that's one of the beauties of artificial life that basically it has continued to avoid definition in some well, not that it's continued to avoid definition, that the definition, as it's included more and more different kinds of software and different approaches, has grown. I mean, artificial life as a term, late eighties, is very different to artificial life as it is now, although Langton's seed of life as it could be gives the ability actually to fill what is being seen now in artificial life software terms. But in uh-huh. terms of folks who weren't necessarily living that mantra as they were developing in the late 80s, it is a very different thing then than it is now. So maybe we've avoided that aspect with, with artificial life as a non-disciplined discipline fundamentally. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, it's sort of Langton and, and those guys helped to fuel it in, in the very beginning with a diversity of viewpoints and people and to try to keep it uh, dynamic um, yeah, and maybe it is the nature of the of the multidisciplinary. Although, from some of the light artificial life conferences I went to, such as the one in in Indiana, where uh, Larry Ager and um, Douglas Hofstadter are, that um, there was some debate going on in terms of keeping artificial life as a as a free, uh, open discipline. And I think that the 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 uh, the debate was mostly between the biologists, the more traditional biologists, and the um, on the one side, and on the other side were the I don't know what you would call them, the artists, programmer, philosophers who who wanted to uh, to uh, not uh, const- not be constrained by Earth biology. And I think that's a very interesting debate. And perhaps that debate, perhaps that debate, is part of the the. Uh, inherent conflict in artificial life, which is we have Earth as our example. We don't have any other examples, but we are trying to extra- ab- abstract the idea of life. And so I guess there's a built-in conflict. Well, I'm going to my first artificial life conference this year, and I'm really looking forward, actually, to the opportunity of meeting Larry Yeager primarily, but also a number of other folk. Where is that? It's at Michigan this year. Uh-huh. So, um, no, I'm really looking forward to uh, to meeting a wide variety of folk that I've only ever spoken to through these podcasts. As with my day spent with you, it's, um, I'm, I'm hoping I can spend enough quality time with these people. I'm also giving two panels on uh, first, artificial life in industry, and secondly, the teaching of artificial life for industry. And the International Society has made me the chair of their industry liaison special interest group so i have all this additional responsibility which i guess just basically means gathering people together to tell war stories but uh (laughs) no i'm really looking forward to it just as an opportunity this will be the first artificial life conference that i've been able to attend within my means and i'm even having support from my employer in order to go to it so yeah i'm really looking forward to that actually i will make my uh 
my late Northern Hemisphere summer worthwhile. So folks who are listening in who are attending the Artificial Life Conference uh, this year, please do let me know. I'd love to get together with, with Biota like-minded folk for, uh, I don't know, uh, a conversation associated with these weary biologists that just don't seem to get it. It would be wonderful to have the opportunity to uh, to meet a wide variety of folk on location and potentially also... Um, I've kind of promised this through other people through proxy at the previous Artificial Life conferences, but actually having me there physically will probably facilitate a number of interesting audio recordings. My hope is also that I'll be able to record at least the two panels that I participate in or, or chair and potentially other panels as well, because I think the stuff that comes out of the Artificial Life conferences is relatively different um, to what the general conversation is through the biota community. And it's interesting. I'm not sure if Jeff Kloon is going to be there because in the last recording that I did with him, he described a preference for the Gecko conferences for the kind of artificial life that interested him. And that seems to be a lot more along the line of the stuff that we've been discussing uh, this evening and, and previously, Jeffrey. But yeah, my hope is because it's his alma mater that Jeff Kloon will return to uh, to Michigan this year and I'll be able to uh, to meet him as well. I'm sorry, Jeff who? Jeff Kloon. He's he's also going to appear in the Artificial Life Conversations. He's a relatively recent graduate who came through, well, Michigan initially. And I want to say he's at Cornell now. I'm, I'm probably getting that totally wrong. Either uh-huh. Cornell or Yale. I'm probably confusing him with someone else. But anyway, so he came through the kind of the VEDA program. And his stuff actually is relatively sympathetic to your exploration of fractals. He has... Uh, an interesting kind of fractal symmetry argument that I used in the same chapter that I discussed the fractals in as well, in terms of searching for life through these patterns. Mm. So, yeah, Jeff Jeff is an interesting guy. He he talks very quickly, which is a quality that I really like for Biota Podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) You get this heavy density of text that you have to re-listen to, or heavy heavy (laughs) wordage that you have to re-listen to. It's all on point, and the flow is all there, so he's wonderful to listen to as well from that perspective, too. And so, yeah, no, he's certainly someone to... uh, to yeah, to to keep track of. Um, his uh, stuff has also created um, physical. He's basically used genetic algorithms to create physical walkers, robotic walkers. Uh huh. He simulates them in software and then he spits them out through one of these three D fabrication, um, like commercial fabric- fabricators. So my recollection is that he has a series of like legs and flippers and things like that that you can buy online and connect to your robots too, which is beautiful you know movement from soft to hard artificial life perfectly so i mean maybe he'll bring some of this stuff to artificial life uh, 13 if he is if he's going to be there jeffrey in terms of your general surveying of things artificial life or things that should be artificial life is there anything that you'd like to i don't know like to identify to the community listening in well i guess since i've been since i've been involved with this company visual music systems for a while i've i've put a lot more thinking into um into this the idea of musical beings is something that I've explored a little bit, and I might actually be uh, exploring that if I do this research with Bernard up in Vancouver. The idea that music, you know, I don't know whether the song as a genre is dead or whether the musical piece is dead. It probably isn't. But I think music is going through an evolution, particularly with interactive technology, in which uh, a musical piece might be interactive and ever-changing, and it never starts and never ends, and it's adaptive. And the idea that you could have a musical entity that is an agent and has agentry 
and you can interact with it and respond to it in the same way that you would respond to another being. And it changes uh, in very musically relevant ways. I think there's, there's a whole lot of potential there. And um, I did a little bit of experiment with the evolving music uh, system. Uh, and I'd love to come back to that someday if I ever find the time. But that, that's one area that I think still has a lot of potential. It's something that occurred to me when you passed on the Melody Ball source to, for it to go open source, that there would be a really quite interesting feedback loop within that. And I remember you had some software that had like a, some kind of brass instrument that was basically being fed music for direct listener feedback. Do you remember that software? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, I call it the musical gene pool. And uh, there have been several uh, evolutionary music systems um, that have been developed uh, in experimental ways. And I think, in fact, Brian Eno was one of the people that was kind of playing around with this area and popularizing the idea of generative music. You know, the idea that it could be evolutionary and adaptive and have intelligence and agentry in a big way uh, as like an, like an AI system, I think could give it a lot more potential. Very interesting. Well, Jeffrey, it's always a pleasure to be able to rap with you. Hopefully our next rapping session will, uh, will occur on location somewhere where we could both be in each other's presence. That would be great, yeah. And the benefits of actually living, well, I guess, what, 60, maybe 70 miles away from you, is that we could actually uh, we could actually get together at some stage. Um, and I do certainly like your part of the world. And as summer is coming, there are probably more incentives to get up there uh, one weekend. Oh, absolutely. And also so our respective spouses can meet each other. I don't think our respective pets will be able to meet each other yet. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah. I think Otto would get along with your cat, but, I, but who knows? Well, yes, who knows? To be determined in the future. Jeffrey, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you once again for the opportunity to chat on a Biota podcast. Great. Thank you, Tom.